Welcome, everyone. Um, welcome to this masterclass with production designer Maria Jerkovic, two-time BAFTA nominee. Um, thank you very much for coming on such a beautiful evening outside, and also when there's a certain football match going on as well. Um, I think we're just going to kick off. We'll be talking for about 90 minutes. We'll have some clips, um, conversation, and I'll be about 25 minutes, half an hour, for an audience Q&A at the end. Um, we always start at the beginning and your route in. Um, how did production design come into your life? Okay, so, I mean, I, I've been a monomaniac about it, basically. Um, <laughs> I think I was honestly, I'm not exaggerating, eight years old or so, when I sort of watching BBC costume dramas at the time and thought, this, somebody's making those worlds, somebody's making those sets. And, and from that point, I would be making period costumes for Barbie dolls and making little <laughs> box sets for them. And it was like, it's like, it was so obvious that I would end up having to do this um, as a way of earning money. I mean, it's like, it, there was nothing, it was monomania from the start. And of course it helped that my father was an art director, but he actually really, really, really tried to discourage me from um, going into the film industry. He said it was a business that was full of shit, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work, and um, I ended up, uh, yeah, I, end, I ended up studying fine art at Oxford, but then I did, a, but I spent my whole time in plays. So I was mm. Oxford Playhouse designing sets, theatre sets, and doing Edinburgh Festival every year. And that, at that stage, I thought I was going to do theatre, and I did a post-grad course in theatre design, and then I needed to earn some money. And those were the days when the BBC still had a big uh, art department, and I, and I joined that as an assistant. And then I realized very quickly that I'm not incredibly good at being told what to do. And, um, <laughs> but I'm quite good at telling people what to do. So um, it, it, I realized that the BBC it would be a long, slow process to get to where I wanted to be. So um, I just... I worked as Jim Clay's assistant on The Singing mm. Detective, which was a fantastic learning thing. I mean, absolutely amazing. And then I left and decided to go freelance. And um, just sort of, I started getting a lot of work at a really young age set decorating, which I loved and, and, and I'm still kind of very passionate about. But, at the, but, but then I realized that could be me for the rest of my life. Mm. And I realized I had to kind of cross over quite quickly. So I made the decision and I really took a drop in salary from you know, getting quite big films as a set decorator to starting right down at the bottom and designing, you know, sets for kids' television programs and slowly building up to, you know, what I'm doing still now. Um, and in terms of kind of them moving into the HOD role, particular, particularly in film, what is it that captures you from for the script. Is there something that's always a, there's a common thread that you look for? No, not at all. I, I think I'm very script driven, and I think and and you know I would encourage anyone else who wants to do this crazy job to do the same thing. Um, and I learnt from past mistakes. You know, at an early stage where you can read a script and kind of think this isn't really terribly good, but there's some great sets to do, and that that's just pointless. Mm. I think you have to. I, I still, you know, there are different reasons for doing different different films, but I still tend to choose the uh, the scripts that have the potential to turn into films that I would actually want to go to see. That that's my main kind of motivating thing, I would say. Well, we're not going to go in chronological order. We're going to okay. flit around a little bit. So if we start with kind of a super impressive script with the hours, 
Um, uh, your second collaboration with Stephen Daltrey, mm -hmm. um, a David Hare written script. Let's take a look at it. This is the opening sequence of The Hours, and then we'll talk about it further.
There's a lot in there, isn't there? a lot. <laughs> um, what is completely apparent from that and the film as a whole, there's a really real symbiosis between you, the director, and perhaps all the other HODs, as yes, well as to so. carry yeah. a thread through. From watching it, it seems that it's not even three narratives that are running parallel, they're overlapping, and it's kind yes. of, yes. you know, the souls are carrying through to each one. And you see that, obviously, definitively in kind of traces of clothing and stuff that are mimicked in terms of actions. How did you do that in terms of design? In terms of well, it's interesting, because that... that um, Actually, is a kind of that they were shot as three totally separate films, and at the final scene where they they overlap from the different stories, that's the only time the actresses actually met one another. Um, and in fact, there was a gap because Nicole Kidman hurt her knee, and we actually shot the first two stories, and then we came back six months later to shoot the Virginia Woolf stuff. So it was completely separate. One of sort of for me, one of the things I most enjoy doing when I design any film at all is to sort of find find an aesthetic, find an overall embracing um, identity to the piece. So from the minute you start watching it to the minute you finish, you're immersed in that world. And I think the challenge with the, with the piece like The Hours, which could be quite fragmented mm. with those three stories, and um, is to actually visually unify them. So I, I tend, I mean, this is just you know, the way that I work. Everyone has their own system. I do a ton of research and... and I let images from the re references inform what that piece is going to look like. Um, obviously, the obvious thing to look at doing this piece, The Hours, was to look at the uh, Bloomsbury paintings mm. of that time and to, to pick a colour palette from that. And basically, I, I stuck to the same colour palette throughout the entire three stories, and I turned the volume up in, you know, in, 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 in obviously the, the um, 50s and the contemporary version, and I turned the volume down in the 20s English part. Um, I also played all sorts of games, that was kind of for myself more than anything, where I actually overlapped props and textiles from one story to the other. I don't think you'd notice that, I don't think anyone would ever notice that, but there's another character, Richard, his, his curtain fabric is exactly the same as the curtain fabric that's in the 50s house. And I actually use certain paintings that are hanging in the New York apartment. I use them in, in Virginia Woolf's house. It's, it's not, it's not a it, it was a deliberate thing from my part, but, but I think the trick also is to edit oneself so you're not smacking an audience in the face and be becoming a distraction. Mm. I, think, I think the key thing is to, um, is to know when to stop I suppose, and with something like that, it could become arch and contrived. And the fact that I don't, you know, when I tell people that, they kind of go, "Oh, really? Oh, I didn't notice that." I mean, there, there, there was there was a table that we actually got from um, Charleston House, which was, you know, paint. It was painted by. Uh, it was, I can't even remember, oh, it was her niece, it was Angelica, her niece, who's the little girl in the film, who actually painted the table, and I have that table in the New York apartment as well as the 20s house. And that's just a kind of way of playing with color and, and, um, color and, and objects in this particular film that sort of give it a unity. And, 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 I, and I'm pleased with that opening scene. It's brilliantly edited. That's mm. so cleverly edited. But, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see that transition. But it would have looked very, very different if I was trying to give each of those three stories its own very particular identity. In terms of the objects, did you have any involvement in um, the actor's relationship to them and how, in terms of their physical space, how they perhaps would move around it, obviously, by you placing certain things in certain places? It instructs a 
a certain kind of method, maybe? I, I just do what I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no, the only time that I, that, that, um, I suppose that I was very clearly guided, I, I designed The Invisible Woman that Rafe Fiennes directed, mm -hmm. and that was extraordinary, because you've got an actor like Rafe, and, and when we were scouting locations, every location, even locations we didn't shoot in, Rafe would start playing out the scene in, and I'm going, oh, okay, so that's mm. where the sofa goes. That's where he wants a chair. That, that was extraordinary. That was the only time. I, I, I mean, you know, they're obviously conversations and plans, and you talk to the mm. director, and you talk to the DP, um, and, you know, you sort of sometimes on the day, you have to move stuff around, but um, no. Are you surprised with sometimes how not or not visual a director could be? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. They're quite, yep. <laughs> and, then they're, and, then, and then, you know, the joy is working with the real filmmakers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Thomas Alfredson jumps out, and I've just finished doing The Little Drummer Girl for Park Chan-wook, who's another, you know, amazing filmmaker. And that's a real pleasure. And, and quite often, um, those really, the, the, those directors with such a strong cinematic uh, vision are the ones who actually give one the most freedom. Mm. That's really interesting. And that, I think, once they've made the decision, you know, to choose whoever their HODs are, that, you know, part of, part of why they can create such amazing pieces is because they let you just kind of get on with it. It's obviously conversations and collaborations, but, but uh, just now on The Little Drummer Girl, mm. I mean, I, I had a fantastic time. Um, Director Park... He, he's known by everyone as Director Park. Mm, yeah. And he, um, he really, really was completely happy for me to go really bold in a way that I'm used to quite often having to say to a director, let me do it, please let me do it. And if, if you don't like it, I'll paint it cream, I promise. And <laughs> that wasn't the case with him at all. So there's some really quite out there kind of colours and, and <laughs> visuals which um, made it a lot more fun. Even that, perhaps the little drama got a completely different experience for you in some ways. A six part. Yes, uh, that was hell, but television. <laughs> a lot to do because, but it was a fantastic. No, I loved the job. I absolutely. I mean, is that the it. first time you've done something on that scale? And uh, well, it, yeah, it's six hours. Mm. That's an awful lot. And in fact, the the um, you know when you're working on any film, you divide the number of sets, and each one has a number for accounting purposes. And you know when you put in your cost reports, there's a figure against each set. But on The Little Drummer Girl, we went so far over 100 that the accounting system couldn't cope with over 100. So we had to sort of mush sets together. So I don't know how many there were. I mean, it was, it was quite crazy, but it was um, a really remarkable experience. I really enjoyed it. And I, had, I hadn't done any television at all since 2000, I think. Mm. And he has never done any, but he treated it like a film. I mean, we shot one six hour film in 18 weeks, mm -hmm. and I'd just done Red Sparrow, which was um, two and a whatever it is hours in 19 weeks. So, you know, there's, there's a huge difference in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, with a little drama, another Le Carre adaptation. Yes, yes. yes. Um, is that how you came to it in terms of how? Oh, wise. Yes, or? Director Park yeah. made it very clear <laughs> that I got the gig because of um, Tinker Taylor, yeah. which he liked. So, yes. We'll come back, we'll skip back again um, and to another Doldry collaboration oh, to yeah. Billy Elliot. That's um, a long time ago. A long time <laughs> yeah. ago. To 1998, oh, yeah, yeah. 2000, yeah. something around that. Let's take a look. Yeah. 
<laughs> the wallpaper. I know it's talk. You've spoken about the wallpaper before, but yeah, I like yeah. I like my wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> that that um, that the the thing about Billy Elliot. I I um, when I got sent that script, mm. I really wanted to work with Stephen Doldry because I loved his theatre work. And um, one of the things I felt about Billy Elliot was that it's kind of a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale, which even though it's set against the background of you know, um, mining town in 1984. I kind of felt that it wasn't a historical piece at all. And that, um, that gave us license to exaggerate and, and heighten stuff um, and give it, and you know, because of Stephen's obviously theatrical background, he was very comfortable with me doing that. So part of it is, I suppose, you know, not worrying about period in the same way as if I was doing mm. something that was, um, I don't know, a much more naturalistic piece and heightening everything and making sure that when he goes to the film school, we didn't just go to White Lodge, but we found something that had hints of White Lodge, which was much bigger and much more extraordinary. And, um, you know, using, again, the colors, being quite um, restrained about what I was doing with those. And, um, yeah, no, it was, a, we had no money, absolutely no money. It was ridiculous. And, and um, we just had fun with it. And actually, when we were shooting in Easing, Easington Colliery, obviously, like, it's this main square and all the doors had kind of modern, you know, UPVC windows and doors. And we could only for, afford to build six door plugs. That's all the budget let us do. And I had an assistant who had a little hatchback and the doors were just in the back of his car. He'd look through camera and go right over there and then drive over and start <laughs> plugging the doors in into the background. You know, when you, you sort of think, um, and I still watch that and there's a scene with the, um, with the police charging one of the miners' strikes and there are several black vans, but only one of them has a grill on the windows. They should all have had a grill on the window, but we couldn't afford to put grills on all the windows. When you think how well that film did, you know, it's crazy. But um, now basically, the, it's the fairy tale aspect. And, mm. and, you know, that sense of creating an atmosphere and that thing I was talking about earlier, which is being able to heighten stuff, um, but sort of having to trust your gut or your instinct to know when you're overdoing it. I mean, in Billy's kitchen, there were lots of plastic washing up mm. dishes. 
And Tatiana McDonald, my set decorator of now, I think, 20 or 21 films. It's just crazy how many we've done together now. We counted that we'd put 32 plastic washing up bowls in that kitchen. But the camera doesn't see, mm. ever see that number of plastic washing up bowls. So you're always, you know, it's that thing of also thinking about what the camera is going to be seeing. And it's very different to what you're seeing when you're walking into a space and looking around. And that's part of it, too. And also, was it a very obvious choice with all the colour pops and not to kind of fall into the cliches of what working class Northern England would look like at that Do you know, time? it's interesting. Again, I did the thing, again, of, of doing research and looking at, mm. the, at the references. And then there's a certain... It, that's what we do in our job, mm. is that you... I like to be thoroughly grounded in the subject matter and then pick and choose the bits that I want to use and, and sort of, you know, reject the the rest and you know it we didn't make that stuff up you know yeah. those references are in there those colors are in there and in terms of trying to find solutions on a tight budget does that still happen now or well do you miss obviously they're a lot better yeah. now but the um the the, the you know it, i think it's obviously true to say that the more interesting projects um tend to come with the smaller budget and so you know you just there's so many so many different criteria for picking a project you know but um yes yes that was quite a challenge well, if we move on to something with a maybe slightly larger budget with tinker taylor yep that's a bit better by. that was still tight that was still tough but yeah yeah let's take a look not in the mainstream. Sit down. I understand you still have one Hungarian identity running. I do. to go to Budapest. This is not about board. Nobody else matters. They're after my head, Jim boy. You understand? Jim. What information? 
treasure. He has the name of the mole the Russians have planted in the British intelligence service. Right at the top of the circus. There's a rotten apple chip. We have to find it. You're not showing MI6. I think we have. We got it, Lumi. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought we'd show MI6. <laughs> I think we will. We, we, we will get that in one moment. But um, John Le Carre adaptation. Uh -huh. There is so much in it, and so much in a very specific Cold War period. Yes. As well, where did you even? begin how and obviously you had source material with the book how did you work in terms of how do you work when you have an adaptation are you kind of taking the script and just running with that or did you go back and forth with materials in terms of the book and the uh well obviously i read the novel mm. um but but it was very clear to me from the first reading you know before i even got the job what this film would look like and you know luckily for me that coincided very much with what thomas thought his film was going to look like so we were very con compatible in our you know the things that we liked and the things that we felt were right for the piece um again i did exactly the same process that i've talked about before which is you know showing uh, looking at all the references figuring out this very submersive world that, you know, I think is clear from that clip mm. and much clearer from the MI6 bit, which I hope you'll show everyone. And um, it's, it's, uh, it was a very, I mean, Thomas is a fantastic person, fantastic director to work with. And, and it's always really thrilling because he pushes one further. So, you know, you come up, I come up with an idea and he says, what about this? What about that? He's never, ever, um, he's always completely open to things and he always just pushes one a little bit further. So for example, the interview room, the conference room, um, which I don't know if it has, it's, it's not there. So it, there was the room that I made out of soundproofing foam that had a sort of, uh, but, but it was an exaggerated scale. And um, it was painted in this particularly weird kind of cac color. And they're not a lot of directors who you could say to, okay, so they're in a conference room and what I want to do is put 360 degrees of this soundproofing foam painted this really rather unpleasant color. There's no pictures, there's nothing, there's nothing else in this room. They're not that many, you know, directors who would, who would go great. And, um, you know, the one thing Thomas ha had a very clear idea when I started, uh, when I started it, he had a very cl clear idea of he wanted MI6 to be this outer, very anonymous building, and in the center was a sort of brutalist lump that contained all the other pieces, and that the conference room, that's why I'm saying it's a shame you didn't mm. show that clip, because it, it's much more relevant, really, in a way. But inside that, that central core is the most secret space of all, and that was the conference room, and I came up with this idea of the porter cabins. And um, before I even had the interview with Thomas, 
I do a yoga class right outside the building where we shot MI6. And, and before I'd even done my interview, I was doing yoga thinking that's MI6 out there. And, and it was, that, that's what you see in there. Um, I mean, working on something like that way, where you know Thomas puts together a team of people who are all so collaborative, it's it's you know it's you can kind of feel that. I think mm. you really see that in the result because it's so tight, tightly figured out between all of us, and and you know everybody we we maintain this very strict color palette and put together with you know Hoyter's wonderful lighting. I think I think it's sort of really imbued with atmosphere. And having conversations with. David Cornwall, John Le Carre, how kind of... Oh, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, yeah. you know, we had, we did have conversations yeah. with him and we found out... Um, and what was great about him was that he was completely op open to our interpretation of what this space that only spies have ever seen. You know, no one else knows what it actually looks like. So what you see in the film is our version of it. And um, he, he fully embraced it. He was... Um, he wasn't remotely, you know... Sort of like, what, what the hell are these filmmakers doing? He he was really kind of went with it fully, and then he gave us so many wonderful little snippets of uh, you know do's and don'ts for for the circus, and uh, you know glass plates on all the desks, so when anybody wrote with a biro, they wouldn't make imprints on the on the desk, or you know total perspicacity, so every rubbish bin had to be emptied at the end of the day. So when you see them walking through um, MI6 at the end of the day, there are always rubbish bins on all the tables uh, that are empty, so everyone can see. And the, there, everyone's always carrying around these files with these rather odd, crude stamps. And that was again so that every any if if, if some somebody uh, was walking from one side of the room to the other, everyone would see what particular subject they were dealing with by this very crude stamp that was on the on the file. So for us, witchcraft was the candle flame, um, which you see in, in the film. Do we have that? Well, well, move on, or I'll try and come back to talking to Tim Taylor in further detail. Um, you've worked also with first-time directors a couple of times with Phil Delord for Mamma Mia and Phil Luca Guadagnino for a big. Well, he's not, but he, he well, not he'd that. He'd done I Am Love, sorry, and, you know, and he's um, done other films. With Mamma Mia in particular, that was yeah. a complete set build, wasn't it? Well, the, the Villa Donna, yeah, was a crazy build in the on Bond stage at Pinewood. It was quite nutty. What were the challenges of putting that together? Um, getting it done in time, it's a huge build, you know, and it's got to be drawn and built, and that was a three-month build. And, and also, because we, we were, uh, and we filled the Bond stage, I mean, literally wall to wall, floor to ceiling. There was like no space left. It was ridiculous. And, and actually, one of the challenges were that we, were st we started on the set in London and then went to Greece when it got a bit cooler in September. Um, but at, while we were building the set, we were also scouting the Greek islands, which is probably one of the most fun things I've had to do. We were in a helicopter. We oh, we'll land there. No, 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 no. Let's go somewhere else. We sort of floated around all the Greek islands having a wonderful time. But the architecture in Greece changes dramatically mm. from north to south, west to east. So while we were sort of set, we hadn't settled exactly on which bit of Greece we were going to be shooting some of those beaches and exteriors. So, you know, the art department were constantly changing elements of architecture on the set because, you know, obviously, once we settled on the location, then, okay, okay, Skopelos, Skiathos, this is what it has to look like. Um, 
you know, on that set we had 30 trees in the studio and um, it, uh, we had to have lights that came down at night to kind of keep them alive and the fig trees smelt of figs and the orange blossom actually smelt of orange blossom. And it was very weird because we it was February in, in, in England and it was gray and cold. And you walked onto that soundstage and because it was surrounded by, you know, this enormous backing, which is like the biggest shower curtain you've ever seen, it was really hot. It was all lit with LED lights um, so that we could create a horizon line that could move with the camera. And so there was this sort of heat from the lights, this bright blue color of the sky and, and wafts of fig and orange blossom. And everyone was having a great time. It was very weird. Um, working with a theater director who's gone into their first feature, was that a, quite a big shift for the rest of the crew and HODs as well as the director as well? Oh, well, she, you know, Philida um, um, dealt brilliantly with it. And, and what, what, what was so, uh, I, mean, I think one of the things that does work about Mamma Mia is its kind of complete uninhibited silliness. Mm. And that, you know, if, if somebody in somebody else's hands who tried to take it all more seriously, then it would have been something else. But the fact that um, it was just as daft as it was made it all a lot of fun. And it really was a lot of fun. And um, I just remember, I said to Philida, because we were you know, spending a lot of time together in prep, and then on the first day of the shoot, I'm barely on set. I you know, see them onto a new set, and then I'm off. And that relationship completely shifts. And on the first day, I had a text from her saying, are you going to be around at all? And I went, not much. <laughs> and she went, oh my god, all this testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that, that, was, that was fun. So we'll move on to a clip from um, A Bigger Splash to a different kind of testosterone. Um, let's take a look at a little bit of dancing. Oh, yes. Different kind oh, yes. of dancing. <laughs> you produced it? Christ, no. I was 16. This is top. I didn't know that, but I do now.
<laughs> that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like a lot of fun. I think my, my, one of my um, yeah, great memory was going to a very swanky restaurant, a group of us, and I slightly mischievously encouraged Rafe to do his dance in the restaurant, which he did very readily. And all the people in the restaurant, it was quite a swanky place, were holding their glasses, pretending not to notice Voldemort <laughs> doing that. That's a very brave dance. To be in particular with that interior, and I suppose in conjunction with the dance, it ties very intrinsically in with his, with his character. He's going through a phase of kind of, it's on the edge, and there's an, an odd internal rage yes. with him throughout the film, but yes. that's reflected in this kind of really crazy, but very stylized stylized interiors in the film. How did you work out with the script and kind of to keep it so that it, it looked completely natural and you haven't pushed it too far to be a cliche, but it's still very reflective actually of all four personalities, the four main personalities in the film? Well, I mean, Luke, Luca is, you know, Luca has incredible taste, there's no doubt about it. And um, he had very specific ideas about he, he, how he wanted this place to look and he wanted it to be stylish, but at the same time, kind of quite simple and not overdone. It's just, you know, again, it's, it's something that you come to with conversations. And actually I have to say on this film, um, because Luca had already made I Am Love and mm -hmm. that looked super stylish again, I've never ever, found it so easy to get stuff for free because you know just you call up and say I'd like to use your beautiful 18,000 euro sun loungers on the film and they send them to you you know they go back of course but um it was quite quite uh easy you know you you can't put something from Ikea on one of Lucas sets <laughs> that doesn't work and you've still got limited resources so you have to find a way of doing it and that's what we were doing it is like a tourism kind of video for Italy at the same time. Well, Pantelleria yeah. is a beautiful yeah. place, and it was a great place to film. And actually, you know, we, we had this one villa. It was, it was a bit, you know, a bit of a kind of fabulous job because we had to make this one. I mean, there was stuff that we had to do to the gardens. We completely redid the garden, and we repainted the swimming pool, and we built rooms which weren't there. But it was um, a pretty cushy number, I have to say. <laughs> Um, it's based, obviously, loosely on other films as well, with a similar kind of aesthetic and genre. We've got the original Lapisine from the 60s. We didn't look film. at it at all. Mm. No. I, I used the motif that was, you briefly saw um, the, the girl like mm. Dakota Johnson in the pool, and I, and I very deliberately painted the squiggles from Hockney's paintings mm. in that swimming pool, but decided to do it in yellow fluorescent paint. We had a bit of a problem with that because we discovered that the chlorine in the pool slowly faded the fluorescentness of the paint. So I think we had to drain it and repaint it at some point. We will move on again okay. to um, the imitation game. Okay. Um, let's take a look at a clip from the imitation game. It's coming. Welcome, ladies. You'd like to follow me? Some people thought we were at war with the Germans. Incorrect. We were at war with the clock. Britain was literally starving to death. The Americans sent over 100,000 tons of food every week, and uh, every week the Germans would send our desperately needed bread to the bottom of the ocean. Our daily failure was announced at the chimes of midnight. 
Just happened. Midnight. All the work we've done today is useless. Oh, but don't worry. We've a few hours before tomorrow's messages start flooding in. And we start all over again. From scratch. Four hours rewiring his plug board makes it three hours yesterday on rotor positions. Don't go over there. Look, John. No. If this job wasn't already impossible before, it bloody well is now. You don't. soldiers out there trying to win an actual war. My brother protects food convoys in the Navy. My cousins fly RAF patrols. All my friends, they're all making a difference while we just while away our days producing nothing. Because of you. My machine will work. Come on, Peter. Recreating World War II England, it's something that I think we've probably seen so many times mm. in films, but it looks so original and new in oh, good. this well, film. Um, how did you go about not kind of falling into some of the traps and cliches that we used to It was to actually quite hard on that film because that is something that had to be rooted in reality. Um, I suppose, again, it's that thing of just slightly turning the dial up on certain things and, and looking at, at a lot of the um, references and looking at, you know, Bletchley Park has... First of all, doing the research was incredibly easy on this film because Bletchley Park has archives of photographs of all the spaces. So, so you know, and, and I'm sort of off... When I'm starting on a film, the period element... I kind of feel that that's runs through one's veins, that's part of one's DNA. Mm. So I don't even consider that as something... Yet, of course, I'll check on particular, you know, period accuracy of certain things, but the main... That I just take for granted in the same way that I take for granted that, of course, we're going to give um, different characters, different environments to mm. work with, to live in, to work in, to whatever. Of course, that, that, that just goes without even stating it but for me the interesting thing is to create this 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 visual kind of unity to to the piece and i suppose i had quite a lot of trouble finding the hook to hook that onto on this film and it was when i was looking and there was an exhibition at the science museum that had some of turing's drawings when he was doing his studies on morphogenesis now i'm not going to begin to explain <laughs> what that even is or what these drawings even were but they were all these 
very graphic looking little sketches that I have no, I actually to this day don't know quite what they were, but there was a certain quality about them that appealed to me visually. And, and, and so I decided to use that as the hook to put the visuals onto. And you know, we went to look at the machine, the real machine at Bletchley Park on our first day, me and the director, and we looked at it and there's this big box and the dials go round every so often and you kind of think, oof, that's not so interesting. You know, and it plays <laughs> such a vital role. What, what are we going to do? And, and then we went round the back and we saw that it had all these different mechanics that, that were actually much more interesting. And then we saw that this box, we could actually open it up like a book, which is what you saw in this film. And the real machine has got red wires coming out of it. And instead of 15 red wires, we put 200. My stepdaughter, who's sitting in the first row there, was requisitioned to plait endless bits of red wire. And, and we made it like a big, um, it was like a big model make, because we didn't have money to actually send it to model makers. The model makers just made the rotors turn in the right sequences. But uh, prop buyer just got a hold of old radio valves and parts, mechanical bits. And then we got a Immy and a whole load of other people to just come and put these things together. And you know, the, the thing is, that's another example of, uh, yeah, I've got no, no idea how the thing actually worked. <laughs> but I had plenty of references, so I could kind of go, that looks right, that doesn't look right, put a bit more of that over there. It's very unscientific. And what was great, just in terms of feeling that, you know, well, it doesn't look completely idiotic is the fact that that machine now sits in Bletchley Park in their museum, so it can't have been that ridiculous. <laughs> And you know the other thing is that um, Andrew Hodges, who who wrote the incre incredibly sort of erudite biography of Turing, he came and visited us, and he was looking at all the stuff that we had on the walls in the art department. And again, there were certain things that appealed to me. I have to admit, completely for aesthetic reasons. But he was he was, you know, endlessly saying, "Oh, I'm so glad you've done your research." So it's 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 quite gratifying and to be validated by somebody like that that you're not just being driven by something because it looks nice. It mm. actually makes sense as well. So, so much of the information, especially kind of in their workroom and everything, has been, has been remained, has remained so confidential. Yes. And, you know, um, well, well, information that's not publicly known. No, but what's interesting is that they, they destroyed everything. But at Bletchley Park, what they did for them, straight after the war, they recreated they recreated the spaces without seeing any of the any of the spy shit. You know, you didn't see that, but you just saw the spaces. So they got the furniture out and, and they got extras basically to sit and hold up bits of paper that aren't actually anything with code on it. But it certainly informs you as to what, you know, what the thing should look did look like, even though there's no information that, that um, you wouldn't be able to see now. And that's all still there in their even archive. Even photographs or... Yes, photographs, photographs. They recreated spaces with, you know, basically extras. But one of the things I decided to do on that film, you know, it's, it's 1940s, it's wartime, you know, it's all about code breaking. And I just made the decision, this is a period when, uh, for example, floral, floral patterns on clothes, floral patterns on wallpaper would have been mm. everywhere. But you also had geometric patterns. And in that film, I haven't used florals anywhere at all. There's one wallpaper when he's at school in the 20s that I used it on. Everything else throughout that film is like sort of Morse code. It's dots and dashes and geometric patterns. And then Sammy Sheldon, the costume designer, fully embraced that. You can see all those guys in their little Shetland vests with sort of X's and dashes. And, and just a decision like that makes it feel and smell different. 
um, you know, it would have looked very different if every time you went to Joan's lodging house or his place, you know, there were flowers everywhere. It would, it would, the whole atmosphere would be different. I think you've said before, which is super interesting, so especially when you're doing a period piece, not to get bogged down within that particular period, because, you know, even yes. if you're in a house in the 40s Absolutely. or the 50s, you might... Absolutely. You know, have yes. furniture that's 20 yes. or 30 yes. years old yes. or... Completely. I hate mm. that on-the-nose kind of design, you know. It's 1972, so everything has to be from 1972. Mm. That's not how anybody lives. And, and that isn't something I want to do at all. And it's also really interesting how people do fall into visual cliches so, so easily and so mm. readily. And, and um, Little Drummer Girl that I've just finished, which is set in 1979... It was so important for me that we didn't fall into some sort of hideous cliche of the 70s, you know. And actually, 79, you're right on the border mm. of, you know, there's these post-punk and mods and skinheads. And there's so, especially in London, there's so much going on. And, and it, for me, it was, you know, I, I, it was just really important to do something that was on the cusp of another decade and not to just fall into all those, you know, I, you know that one of the, this poor girl in the art department was on the phone ordering carpet samples right at the start of the film, and she was saying, oh, yes, can we have sort of 70s colours? Can we have avocado and orange and brown? <laughs> I went, no, you've completely missed the point. We're not doing that. Um, and, how um, do you translate that then to perhaps like the costume department or to the hair and makeup? Or how do I translate it? In oh, yeah. with, my, with my wallpaper, with yeah. my references. Mm. It's very clear when I, I literally photocopy everything and paste it on a wall. And then, and then it really looks like the office of a mad woman because <laughs> it kind of grows. It, it, it always, we run out of space in the art department. So it kind of tentacles carry on down the corridors. And then I kind of knock on accounts and say, can I come into here too? You know, it's <laughs> not quite, but almost. So I do a wallpaper of images that, um, you know, that's my method. I, mm. I found that works for me, and it's a way of communicating very clearly to my team and obviously, first and foremost, the director and the DP and the costume designer. And if, and if you're working with the right, if the alchemy is good, let's say, between me and the costume mm. designer, you don't need, when, once you've had that, once you've got this wallpaper up, you don't need to have that many conversations. That's the interesting thing. You know, there, there are costume designers you can have a gazillion conversations with and then you see what appears on the set and you just kind of go, oh my God, why, why, why did, you know, I even bother? And then there are other people who you jump, yep, got it, got it. And it's really very gratifying when you, there's one guy, an American costume designer, Danny Glicker, who I think did the best 70s costumes on milk. I mean, they're really just on the nose and totally subtle. And, and working with him is such a joy because he hasn't got a preciousness about, mm. you know, oh, this fabric, oh, it's gorgeous. You know, what he, what, what he does <laughs> every morning, it's, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. And it really shows, um, I, you're not showing a clip of gold, which we did together, but he, um, he'll go and get something off his rail. He'll look at the set and he'll just go away just make a few, it's like, you know, having a paintbrush and putting a few strokes and, and then somebody will walk on and you kind of think, oh my God, if that red dress had been black, that would have been completely different, mm -hmm. but he's just put her in the perfect thing. And, and, and he's so responsive and that's such a lovely, and that doesn't even involve that many conversations. It's just, you know, a, 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 a mutual sort of view of, and then, and then following it being consistent and, you know, I mean, it, it, it sounds ridiculous, but I find I'm constantly shocked 
by how many people in the art department don't have a sense of color. It profoundly shocks me. Mm. Or often doesn't, don't have a sense of period. That one I find really strange as well. <coughs> you've mentioned your um, set decorator, Tatiana McDonald, yes. who you've worked kind of with for 20 plus films. How does that relationship work? And well, is we're there sort of telepathic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I've, I've literally, the only, the only films, she's got three boys, and the only films we didn't do together was, I mean, she didn't do The Hours, she didn't do Mamma Mia, there are a few others that she didn't, oh, Sylvia, there are a few she didn't do because she was actually giving birth and breastfeeding, so, but other than that, it's, it's fabulous for me, beca and uh, because there's just a telepathy, mm. and, you know, we have very overlapping tastes and, and understanding, and we respond, you know, we like the same, people always laugh, because, like, you know, when you're doing the tech recce's and you have to put in your lunch order, the girls in production said, you know, you and Tat always order the same food. <laughs> it's like, and, and you know, or we'll turn up at work wearing the same item of clothing that out of all the shops in London, we've gone and bought the same thing. You know, it's just silly. But so that makes it a lot easier, obviously. It's great, yeah. Are you continuously shopping and looking then for... What, for um, new clothes? Well, <laughs> new clothes and just with an eye out, you know, do you have a ma you're, uh, at home, you know, a massive kind of prop set covered just in case you spot something in an antique shop or something? No, no. you can't. No. You absolutely, my, my house is full. I mean, there's not much space left, um, but no, you can't do that. And you can't be precious. You can't be precious about, you know, the set gets demolished, you finish shooting on it and that's it, it's gone. You can't be, you just, um, you know, that for me, I'm, I, I really enjoy the creative process mm -hmm. and, and the coming up with the ideas and then seeing it through to, the, to, to getting it dressed, having it perfect, seeing the crew on and then saying bye-bye. I mean, I actually don't like being on camera very much at all. I actually hate it. Um, <laughs> I, I, it just feels like this unwieldy beast comes and messes everything up straight away and I, and I just can't bear to watch it, so I... Go quickly. If we are talking of unwieldy but brilliant sets with um, the imitation game Alan Turing's house, it is truly reflective, you think, of what he is and the genius. Good. I mean, that, yeah, that was very obviously intentional. And that's the, the stuff that's on the wall, all the actually makes sense. He was, after, after the war, he was making his studies at Manchester University. And you know, we researched into what he was looking at and what he was, he was particularly interested at this point in morphogenesis, which is, I, I think it's the um, natural forms in biology. So how, how does a leopard get its spots or a zebra get its stripes or you know, uh, it patterns on a leaf or whatever. That was the thing he was particularly, and they're those, I don't know if you're familiar with those amazing Haeckel plates. Ernst Haeckel in the 18, oh, so he was a German Victorian artist who was, who was studying the same thing and did these absolutely beautiful, beautiful prints of, of uh, forms from nature. And we use those throughout the apartment. And, he made, and Andrew Hodges, mm. as I said, the bio, biographer came and actually got very excited. And he, he was very pleased. He was saying, oh, I'm really happy that you know, you've been true to, true to the subject. And I was very happy because they're very beautiful things as mm. well. We, so one of your most more recent films, Red Sparrow, we have the trailer, we don't have the clip. Because no, because it comes out on the 9th of July. It does, it? but let's take a look at the trailer of Red Sparrow. I was told to take a mental hotel. 
He said that he was an enemy of the state. Take off your dress. And in exchange, my mother would get the doctor she needed. Instead, they cut his throat. There could be no witnesses. So they gave me a choice. Die or become a sparrow. From this day forward, you will become sparrows. Weapons in a global struggle for power. You'll be trained in psychological manipulation. You must learn to push yourself beyond all limitation. Take off your clothes. When we are finished with you, the person you were will no longer exist. Every human being is a puzzle of need. You must become the missing piece, and they will tell you anything. You have a gift. You know how to survive. This is what you were meant to do. Who's a traitor in the government? His last known contact is an American. Get close to him. I thought I saw you in pool yesterday. Are we going to become friends? Is that what you want? She's a sparrow. The only matter because of what you can do for them. Work with me and make these men pay. You are better at this than any of us. Your only problem is you have a soul. We can't trust a word that comes out of a mouth. There's something else we're not seeing. If she's compromised, she will be eliminated. What have you done? You belong to them. They will never let you go. I'll find a way. We've entered a world again of espionage. Yes, yeah, I, I get lots of things. <laughs> um, the go-to designer for the CIA and Russian espionage. Spy, no, no, spy stuff. So. Yes. Oh, you've got a drawing. Yeah, we will be pulling drawings up. Okay, yeah. so these these are not presentation yeah. drawings. I absolutely, oh, God, seeing it that big. <laughs> um, these are sketches that I do incredibly quickly just to, I, you know, if you look at a location, you go into a location, and just for me to illustrate to the director what one can do with them, that's that's what these are meant to be, not nothing else. And in fact, one of the joys of working on Red Sparrow was extraordinary for, you know, a big studio film. I guess it's because Francis, with the Hunger Games films, mm. you know, he made the studio clearly a lot of money, and he's just left to his own devices, therefore I'm left to my own devices. And the extraordinary thing is we didn't have to do one studio presentation, anything, at all to anybody. I did these drawings which I showed Francis, and he went, great, do it, and then we did it. It was quite unusual, um, you know. For is that the first time that's happened for you, that you... Well, no, but, but what I'm saying, no, no, no on, a, on a smaller, you know, yeah. film, you, you do that anyway. Yeah. But what I'm saying is on a big budget studio film like this, for it to work, the working method to be exactly the same if one was doing, you know, a low budget British film was very nice. Yeah. was very nice so that I didn't have to do the song and the dance thing and here's a big presentation. It was, you know, it was just doing what we needed to get the job done. These, these drawings are about, you know, just getting the job done. 
In terms of the sketches, I've just seen that the, those red spiral, but with all the projects you work on, is that how you yeah. preliminary work in yeah. sketch form and sketch everything yeah. out kind of to it's begin much, with? much, much quicker. Or, I mean, I do, hmm. oh, I don't know, four of those drawings in a day or something, you know. So it's, it's, it's a quick way of communicating things. And then right from the start, you can... You know, you can see, and the, what's interesting, Tat always says this, that, that great, she always says it's amazing how, how those sketches don't turn into something that different. I mean, you can rather nicely pasted those two together there. I mean, that, that is the drawing for that room. And actually, it's interesting how those first ideas don't tend to ever, do, it's, mm. at the end, like Tat once said, it's like looking at your child grown up and going, of course you were going to look like that. <laughs> so, I think she summed that up really well in some interview that we had to do together. We can open up for the audience now. So there will be a couple of roving mics. Don't be shy. We have a question here at the front. Um, Maria, thank you very much for an enlightening story. I just wanted to talk, ask you about Mamma Mia, because obviously you said that you did it on set at Pinewood. I mean, what was would have been the difference in cost of shooting on location, on natural locations, compared to the studio? Well, the, reason, uh, the reasons we didn't shoot it all on location... I mean, obviously the beaches we shot on location, and other than on the, the, the main villa set. Um, the chapel we built at Pinewood and put on that hill on a Greek island. The reason we did it, that wasn't my decision. That was, that was a productorial decision. We were on that set for nine weeks. So that's, you know, it's time, nine weeks. That dance floor at one point has to erupt with a fountain coming out of the dance floor. There's one very good reason for doing it as a set build. Um, the set had to be completely even for them to dance on. Um, we, it was, you know, just simply the sun in the summer in Greece, just, you know, it, it would have been so difficult to control the lighting. There, there are many, many, many reasons that production decided. In fact, you know, I, I went against my grain because I, I, I'm very happy to build. But, you know, for me, I thought it felt like it should be a location, but it was actually a pro produ productorial decision for all those reasons I've just given you that, that it had to be a set build. Thank you very much for enlightening um, experience. Uh, Maria, um, I'm a writer-producer, and I'm just wondering, how much detail do you prefer in a script, or um, would you rather have it like bare bones that you can add on to? Oh, that, that depends on the writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you, I have to admit that there are certain scripts where you know, I'll say to the director, we're not doing this, are we? No, 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 no. That, that happens, I'm afraid, quite a lot. But then there are other scripts where you read and you gain so much. So in that case, you're very happy for, for it. So again, I can't give you a, this, this, this is something that... And, and if there's something, you know, it, it, in the end, there's always conversations with the director about everything. And... You know, sometimes I find myself, you know, you're saying we're not doing this or we're setting this in a completely different location. And, we, and I think one of the really important things is if you are working to not a huge budget is to be open to locations and, and not to be dogmatic about them and not to um, be... 
it's actually to let the locations give, I'm a real believer in locations can give you so much. And on Red Sparrow, actually, being in Budapest, there's just such a wealth of amazing spaces. And, and actually working with Francis Lawrence was great in that because we were not being prescriptive at all. And we had this fantastic German location manager, just a genius. And it was actually a very fun experience. And we, you know, there were things that were not in the script that we kind of thought, how about setting this here? And, and you know, it's, but there's no, again, there's no rules. Thank you very much. That's really helpful. We haven't talked about working with um, Ray Fiennes on an invisible woman and how that was obviously different in terms of an actor director. Yes. And how did that help? Was that the first time you've had that relationship and how did that impact on the way that you worked in terms of, you know, obviously him knowing the physical space? of the room before. Yes, well, Rafe was actually brilliant to work with. I really, really, really enjoyed the experience. And he's, he's incredible, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's amazing. He's incredibly well prepared. He's, um, he can draw. He, he went to art school and he draws his own storyboards and it's, it's quite impressive. He understands it, but he's obviously, he will be coming at it more from an actor's point of view. And he was, there were, there were, I mean, you know, it was it was actually a really good. He was a very he was open-minded, and when we started, you know, the film is set between 1850 and 1870, and and he was saying, "Why are you having to put all this pattern in here?" I was going, "Because you picked a period which is like, you know, the most decorative period in the history of mankind. It's like an explosion of ornament," and and you know, his initial re response was, you know let's not do that. And I would say, you have to do that. For this period, you absolutely have to. And I actually dragged him around the V&A and took him to the exhibits in the, in, and then you know, said, look, look, this is what was going on in this period. And um, it was a really nice collaboration, actually. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. But it, it, it did take a slightly different, I can't put my finger on it again. Um, you know, it was rather amazing for him to enact each scene in each set. Um, and, and, you know, you could, you could visualize, I mean, you know, I was fully informed how that scene would block from the minute I saw his face. Mm. So that's never happened before. We have a question just here. I'm curious whether there's a type of project, feature, or TV drama series that you've never been offered, that you wish you had been offered, mm. isn't coming your way as um, yet. I love period, I love it, I won't pretend. And um, oddly recent, I haven't done any sci-fi, and, and oddly recently I have been asked to do some sci-fi. And I found myself uh, not jumping at it, and I think it's because I need to do the kind of films I enjoy seeing, and I've never enjoyed that particular genre. Um, and so, you know, you put far too much of yourself into it for, for too long a time. And so to do something that, I, it, for me, it has to be something that I think I'd quite enjoy watching. And um, so I've been quite lucky in, in, you know, and I've also been very lucky in getting to work with directors whose work I've really admired. Um, but in terms of genre, I, I don't know what other genres, um, you know. I, I am naturally drawn towards the period things, the things which have more atmosphere. Um, no, I think I've been lucky. Question at the front. 
Hello, this Hi. has been great. Um, I have a question for you. I'm going to ask you to jump a little bit into somebody else's head, uh, which is to say that uh, I find that some directors treat production design as a matter of practicality and some treat yes, it as a matter absolutely. of artistic expression. Yes. You seem to be very much on this end of the, the artistic expression end of the scale here, and I love the fact that you talk about feel, like the word feel just comes up in your vocabulary yes. um, consistently. What I'm, gonna, what I'm asking you to do here is, uh, do you feel like the role of director when they're working with you changes somehow? In other words, do you, do you feel like when the directors you work with, is their role changing? Uh, do, do you feel like you're taking a load off of their shoulder? Or does it like engage some new form of partnership? Does it actually expand it's their different. role somehow? Every relationship is different. The, the most fruitful ones are the ones that are really collaborative. Um, and, you know, I, I often think this job, it's really a weird job because you, you, you're talking about the creative side, which is clearly the, the reason that I'm doing it. But at the same time, you, you know, it's a really weird job because you have to also follow budgets and schedules and you have to have really odd and unusual left-right brain balance. It's quite an odd job to do. Um, the... the, the relationship with every, sometimes I think you almost have to be a bit of a psychologist as well, because you work differently with each director, and that relationship is drastically different each time. And you sort of find, you find the thing that works. And you know, the other thing is that obviously there are, you know, a gazillion approaches to the job. And as I said before in the interview, in the other interview we did, you know, Ken Loach is going to be looking for a very, very, very different designer to Wes Anderson, you mm. know, clearly. And in between that, there's a whole range. And, and um, I suppose my slightly, the things that I enjoy doing and will always do are, are going to appeal to some directors and not others. So the natural, you know, selection process, because there are a million directors and so many designers and that when it works is what's really exciting but it's different every time and the most um it's actually talking to young directors and saying do you know you know who, who may be making a first film with very little money and, and actually saying to them do you know what your designer can contribute to you because I did a bit of teaching at one point and I kind of suddenly was really aware that the designers were being seen as kind of glorified shoppers and you kind of thought that that's really not what you should be using your designer for. You know, are you aware of what you can get from them? And um, I think the most, and it's interesting, because the most um, kind of visually literate directors are the ones that actually tend to give me the longest leash of all and, and are very happy. I mean, you know, with Thomas, there's a scene where in Tinker Tailor where, you know, the Russian gets eviscerated in a bathtub. And I said to him, Let's make that bathroom entirely red, so you can the blood. It, you know, any you, you know what? Or there's a scene with Mark Strong in a prison in a Russian in the Lubyanka prison, and I found this wonderful wallpaper that's pink and pale blue with silver flowers on it, and I showed it to Thomas and I said, I want to put this in the prison cell, and his response was, I love it. I don't know how many or the the business, as I said, 360 degrees of you know cat colored foam. You know, so if it's, 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 about, it's about finding your tribe, it's about finding your team, it's about finding people who speak the same language. And when you do, it's great, and when you don't, it's bloody awful. <laughs>
if you go back to that question of kind of genres, particular particular genres that you haven't worked on, would you do something like a Wes Anderson magical realism? Oh yeah, okay. you bet, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Actually, um, Rafe introduced me to Wes Anderson at some screening, and I said to hit, to, to Wes Anderson, "I've got a hitman out on Adam Stockhausen, <laughs> his production designer." He didn't laugh at all, and <laughs> 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 completely misfired. It's my mate Polly. <laughs> Do you ever get blocked? Do you ever have a moment where you think, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do? Do you know I don't? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Never. I get blocked about many other aspects in life, Polly. We've had conversations about not not this job, no. Not even for a second. No, I'm very opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Oh, um, yeah, could you talk a bit about how you work with the director of photography in pre-production, like how you incorporate practical lights onto the sets? Mm. That that's again a completely different relationship on every film, and it's so. I mean, the last thing, Little Drummer Girl, was this wonderful Korean DP who was just a complete joy and a true, true collaborator, and. Um, Again, it completely varies. Oh, yeah, practicals. We're always having conversations about what practicals are going to work on the set. On Tinker Taylor, Hoyter was very specific about having extra large lights that we use, and we ended up making these things because we could never have found um, the lights that we used uh, in the MI6 building if we hadn't made them. So you have conversations, and um, it's, it's, it's the same as with the director. It, it completely varies. And what was, so, I mean, Wush, who I've just worked with on Little Drummer mm. Girl, I mean, he, he is just incredible. He can, he's so collaborative and he has no ego, which is quite unusual for a DP. <laughs> and um, he's, 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 you know, there was, we were working at such a rate and at such, such a pressure. And, you know, there's certain things that you just could not deal with. Like suddenly you picked a road to do a scene and it's got, the speed marking, 20 miles an hour written, which is anachronistic, and you haven't got time to get rid of it, you haven't got time, permission to cover it. And I go to Wush and I say, can you help me? And he says, yes, I can. And there's, you think, how is he going to do this? They've got a camera in the car and they're driving down that road, and how are they going to miss this bloody enormous 20 miles per hour? And you watch rushes and you think, he did it, he did it. And, and that's fantastic when you get that, where you actually get you know, a really nice, a dialogue where you help each other. It's brilliant. Doesn't always happen at all. <laughs> <laughs> with the little drama girl, and perhaps even Vanity Fair, um, working with uh, with Miranara, Indian director, and yes. then Park, who is Korean, is that with both places having such a tradition of filmmaking, yes. and so grounding. Did you see it a completely different experience in the way they work and they put a film together, and the way, or, or is it a universal language? Um, Mira less so because, you know, she spent time in New York. You felt she was much more of an inter... With, with um, Park Chan-wook, his, his preparation is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And his work ethic is... I don't know how anyone can work as hard as, as he does. It's quite incredible. And, and the degree of preparation, it's, it's amazing. And so I don't quite know how... I almost think I don't know how we would have done it with somebody else. Mm. You know what I mean? His 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 ideas are clear, and um, he's so well prepared, and he's a proper proper filmmaker. And because we had you know a, 
restrictions on time and money, what he has done with it is instead of, he's, he's shot very little cover. It's quite incredible. And he, he, he has these planned with his DP, these incredible, beautiful choreographed shots. And he'll, you know, just rehearse, 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 do two or three takes and then move on. And he's not shooting cover and he knows exactly what he needs to cut it together. And the sort of degree of inspiredness and professionalism is, was extraordinary. And I've just come back from Vilnius where I was doing a couple of masterclasses and they had another production designer who worked on Snowpiercer, mm. which was actually produced by Park Chan-wook and a different Korean director. And he had a very similar experience. He said mm. that the degree of preparation and, and obviously there is some sort of work ethic that is way better than ours. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to ask you, you talked about tribe, so you have your own department, yeah. and I wondered how you pick your tribe, and if you have any particular interview questions, or how do you, how do you s work out whether somebody's it's right the, to it's, work it's, with you? It's going to be portfolio and how you get on, you know, uh, first and foremost. It's, it's, it's that. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a gut thing. I'll never employ anyone who wears fur, ever, <laughs> and I've actually done that. I've thought about giving someone a job and then I saw her fur hat and I thought, she's out. Um, I'm very prejudiced. Um, uh, it, it's an instinctive thing, you know, it's about getting on. In the same way as, an in, as a director is interviewing his designer, I'll be doing the same sort of thing. And it's interesting because Tat, my mate, mm. 21 films. She came to see me first in, well, the first film we worked on together was Sliding Doors in 1997. Mm -hmm. And she had just worked as a, she's a very good, actually she was a really good um, drafts person. And she came to see me with a portfolio. She just finished working on Event Horizon and it was drawing after drawing after drawing of the sci-fi sets. And um, I just saw something in her drawing that I really, really liked. And I said, but I, I, I can't see anything of you in this. Can you, and she said, but this is what designers want to see. And I said, no, I want to see something of you. And can you come back tomorrow with, so I, and she came back with her textile designs and I just loved them. And, uh, and then, you know, she did the standby on, on sliding doors. And I could just see the way she's, the still lives she's doing on, on a tabletop or something. And I just knew there was something. And, you know, here we are 21 films later. And sometimes you get, you, you get it wrong. You, you, you don't always get it right. There have been a few catastrophes. But the beauty about our job is that it's only for a limited amount of time. So if there's somebody who, you know, it doesn't work, it doesn't gel, hopefully you don't have to get rid of them. But you don't have to repeat that performance. And so, you know, the interview thing... Is I, but other designers would say completely different. Other people, I want everyone to contribute. I like to have a team of people who, who all can have opinions. I can disregard them, but I'll always say, you know, what do you think? Or what? Like I've I've got a few people who I really consider sort of my secret weapons, and um, you know that that you you you. I have, I have two brilliant Italian painters who I met on a bigger splash, mm -hmm. and I've now taken these inspired painters to, uh, to Budapest, Oslo, to Prague, and to Athens with me. And, you know, you just find that team, and, then, and, and it just builds up. And then, the, and then, you know, obviously you get out of sync, and you have to interview for certain roles. And um, it's always really nice when you find somebody who you just go, take this one, this one's a keeper, you know. But 
it's, it, you've got to rely, as you do on so many things, on your gut. You know, it's, it's instinct. We've got time for two more questions. Um, I'm sure that is inevitable. I have to say I found the six, six hours in 18 weeks grueling. And um, obviously, in terms of, you know, two hours, six hours, you know, <laughs> slightly less pay, slightly more pay, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of does tend to make one lean obviously towards the films. You know, I'd be dishonest if I said the other. But, you know, there's so much brilliant TV coming up that absolutely I'm certain that I'll be doing more of it. Would you think about perhaps if there's something in terms of a TV series or continuing drama that is looking at kind of a six-season run, working on the first to set up the look? Yes. Would you consider kind of doing that and then stepping away? Yeah, I did, I did one. I did a, a pilot for HBO that Gus Van Sant... Um, directed and it was in Boston and it was uh, first period America 1692 really lovely thing to do and you know Gus is just a dream to work with as well and it didn't get picked up you know and that was a hell of a lot of work for mm. a pilot that and I found that really that felt incredibly wasteful I mean you know just the idea that we shot this thing and, and Darius Congy was the DP mm. and they got him from Paris and they got me from London and we were in Boston in the coldest winter in East Coast history and we made this thing and then no one saw it. It just was kind of disappointing. One last question just here. I know you probably can't say too much about it, but um, with Black Widow, um, <laughs> um, was there anything other than you know script or period that's drawing you towards it? Um, is there anything it's you just, can bring is, to it? That is a complete rumor. Is it? <laughs> That's a total rumor. I don't know where it came from. Okay. I have no idea where that came from. I actually sent that the, there's been a lot of stuff online, hasn't there, that I'm apparently designing Black Widow. And I sent the link of all this, I Googled it, and I went, oh my God. And I sent it to my American agent. And he went, congratulations, who knew? <laughs> uh, in that case, then, does, and if, would, you, would it be something that you would like to... <laughs> Do you know, the funny thing is that, that that sort of whole genre isn't something that would naturally appeal to me, mm. but that particular one could be quite fun, I suppose. Mm. But, um, no, that, that really... I mean, I was just like, what? Where's this come from? I've no idea. Thank you. Um, so the next thing we'll see is The Little Drama Girl. Yeah. Soon. 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 Very I don't soon. know this the exact. Year, it's really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's. It's and it's. Um. I think it's going to be really amazing. I stopped. I think. I hope. I hope. I hope. I think it's going to be really. Um. Pretty groundbreaking. And I've stopped saying groundbreaking TV. I think it's just going to be amazing. Um. Thank you very much for coming. With thank you, Maria. Thank you. <laughs>